is the universe the way it is? This is a big question. This is a huge question. And hopefully it's a question that you're interested in, which is why you clicked on it. Now today is something different. I'm doing a book review. I normally do interviews of books where I talk to the author. This time it's gonna be my first book review. The first one, I'm a little bit nervous. Um, but th this is gonna be interesting because Paul Davies wrote this book. I, I read it for an astronomy class that I took. Uh, the Goldilocks Enigma, why is the universe just right for life? Uh, he's not a Christian in case you're wondering. So in this discussion, we're gonna be talking about the fine-tuned aspects and parameters of the universe and then looking at Paul Davies' explanation, which is not the God explanation, and really kind of why he rejects the God explanation uh, for our universe and discussing whether that's good or not. And so it should be fun. And then it's not just the Christian response. I'm obviously going to be giving my thoughts on the Christian response, uh, but looking what uh, one of the top scientists, uh, what he has to say about this topic. So thanks for joining. If this is maybe your first time, thank you. My name is Ryan Pauly. Uh, my videos, my content, the goal of this is to help you to know, defend, and faithfully live out the Christian worldview. So trying to understand who God is and the nature of scripture and all the answers to the big questions, uh, defend that against other worldviews and other philosophies and other religions, as well as then faithfully living it that living it out and applying it to the ethical cultural issues that we have today. And so we talk about science and this is going to be the topic of today. Next week actually is going to be an interview on Islam. I have Alan Schleeman from Standard Reason coming on to answer your questions on Islam and how we can and should talk with Muslims. And then I actually just finished an interview with Daniel Carroll. He's a professor of Old Testament, I think at Wheaton College or Wheaton University, I think Wheaton College, um, titled, the book that it's about is titled, um, well, I have it right here. I told you guys about it. Let me pull it up. Here we go. The Bible and Borders, Hearing God's Word on Immigration. That is going to be the week before Thanksgiving. Uh, so that should be fun if you're interested there. there. So that's a little bit about the science. It's uh, other religions. It's cultural issues like immigration. I also have uh, in the works an interview on the Trinity, understanding the nature of Christ, the triune nature of Christ, his divinity, and how do we defend a, dip a difficult issue like the Trinity. But... You didn't come here for all that. That's a little plug. So, hey, if you're interested, if you um, if that sounds like something that's interesting to you, subscribe, like, hit that little bell, and, uh, and you can stay up to date and make sure that you don't miss any of the upcoming interviews and all the content that hopefully helps you better understand, defend, and live out the Christian worldview. Uh, be a faithful ambassador of Jesus Christ in today's culture. Well, today, as you know, uh, we're going to be talking about this fun topic and really the, the, the goal that I have. And as I mentioned, this is my first uh, book review. And so uh, learning how to do this and really want to see what your questions are on this topic and as well as... Um, maybe your suggestions on how to better do book reviews in the future. I have other books that I would love to review that I'm currently reading. Um, so I'd love your thoughts on this. But what we're going to be doing is I'm going to share you a little bit about who Paul Davies is. Why is he writing this book and why did I have to read it? Um, what he talks about as far as from the scientific perspective of the design of the universe. What are these designed details that he discusses? And then looking at his answer to the question, why is the universe the way that it is? And, and kind of working through how his response uh, would would be different than a Christian response. So that's kind of what we're going to be working through in our discussion here. And uh, Slam RN, thanks for joining. Eddie, hello. Uh, thank you for being here as well. So 
hopefully that sounds interesting to you guys. Let's jump in. So Paul Davies, who is he? Well, as this book talks about here, he's an internationally acclaimed physicist and cosmologist. He's the director of Beyond, which is a research institute at Arizona State University. Uh, if you look that up, it actually sounds really cool. So at Arizona State University, he's the director of Beyond, where it says here on their website, Beyond is pioneering uh, is a pioneering center devo devoted to confronting the, re the really big questions of science and philosophy. Uh, their vision is to create new and exciting ideas that push the boundaries of research a bit beyond, to conduct research that transcends the traditional subject categories, to answer foundational questions in science and explore their philosophical ramifications, what might be called the big questions, like why is the universe the way it is, and to present science to the public as a key component of our culture of uh, and of significance to all of humanity. And so that's really his goal, where it says, our research projects projects address such issues and range from cosmology through astrobiology to inform the fate of humanity. We tackle subjects as the diverse as diverse as time travel, the colonization of Mars, multiple universes, the nature of complexity and the relationship between mathematics and nature. So that's really what he is working on at Beyond. He is a theoretical physicist, also cosmologist, as I mentioned. He's written other book, books like The Mind of God, The Fifth Miracle, How to Build a Time Machine, and so really is one of the you know internationally acclaimed physicists and cosmologists really speaking on this area of cosmology. So Great, great source of information. So that's kind of who he is. Now, what does he kind of present here? Well, what's interesting is uh, kind of, as I mentioned, the first part of the book is kind of the introduction. Why, uh, why is this important? What is it that we see? And, and how does this kind of relate to needing to answer the big question of why is the universe the way it is? And actually, the first thing that he jumps into here is this idea of mathematics. Uh, and this is, if you're not aware, this is a kind of a... I wouldn't say newer because it's been around for a long time, but not as popular argument for God's existence. And I'll, I'll post it in the description below uh, when this is all done. But uh, William Lane Craig at the Reasonable Faith YouTube channel just came out with a short video about five minutes long uh, describing kind of the argument for God's existence based upon the applicability of mathematics. I also had an interview, and this is a podcast, this is way before YouTube, a podcast interview um, with Melissa Kane Travis, where in her book, The Science and the Mind of the Maker, where she also uh, presents this argument from the applicability of mathematics and kind of this question of why does math work? And Davies, on page five of his book, he, he says this. He says, for a start, there is no logical reason why nature should have mathematical subtext in the first place. And even if it does, there is no obvious reason why humans should be capable of comprehending it. I think this is a huge and interesting uh, statement here. One is we didn't create math. We didn't make up this idea that two plus two equals four. Uh, we didn't make up the law of gravity. What math is, is math, we are discovering math. We are realizing as we observe and experience the world around us that it is written in mathematical code. The, the fundamental laws of physics are written in mathematical codes that then we can understand and then use to achieve amazing things that we can achieve, like going to space by understanding the laws of physics and gravity and how all that kind of stuff works. And so kind of in this universe that is brought about by chaos, where, why would we expect there to be this perfectly kind of fine-tuned mathematical language that is built into the subtext of, of creation, as he says here? 
And so this is a very, I think, uh, one of the first indicators of, of similar to kind of like the, the fine tuning, kind of the design argument for God's existence. That when we see the language of DNA, like we, we recognize that, that books need authors. You don't get the language and the words that make sense in this book if you don't have an author. It takes an intelligent mind to put together words in a way that makes sense because there's many more ways in which you can combine letters to get gibberish than there is to combine letters to get a well-crafted, understandable sentence. And so if, if our D, not only the information in our DNA functions in a similar way as, as code that has to be a certain way for life to be possible, uh, mathematics is the same way. And so he says, there's, there's no logical reason for math to have this, this is, for there to be this mathematical subtext in the first place. But even if it does, and here's the second very interesting thing, is even if it does, there's no obvious reason why humans should be capable of comprehending it. Here's part two. Not only is our universe ordered and designed, but we have the intelligence and, and the rational capabilities to understand and comprehend that order and that design. Why do we expect us to be able to, to, to perceive and observe and to learn in the way that we are too? So here, just right off the bat, in this idea of mathematics, you have two fundamental ideas that, that in my mind already, and I know I'm jumping to a conclusion quickly, point clearly to a creator, to a designer, to, to, um, to eternal mind that has given us the mind and consciousness to be able to understand these things. Why would we expect, and this is kind of like my interview with John Lennox just, just about a month or so ago, is if, if, if my brain is how I do all of my thinking, and my brain is the end product of a mindless, unguided, random process of evolution. Why would I trust it? Right? If, we knew, if you knew that the computer, the, the cell phone, the calculator that you're about to use on your math test was not programmed by an intelligent programmer, but was the result of a mindless, unguided process of just randomness, um, would you trust that calculator on your math test? Now, as John Lennox talked about in that interview, and, and he asked his scientists, colleagues, they all say no. When I give that example to my high school students, they all say, no, they wouldn't trust it. So why do we trust our mind then? Right? We don't just have this brain that's the result of this mindless process. We have a mind that not only uh, is there this design and this mathematical language in nature, but we have the ability to comprehend it. And he says, look, there's no obvious reason why we should be able to do this. So there's a first very interesting aspect of this, what he calls the Goldilocks enigma, right? It's not too small, not too, not too uh, small or too big. It's just right. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right. We live in this universe that is just right for life. We have a just right universe and a just right galaxy in a just right solar system and a just right location for Earth and a just right size of our main star and a just right moon at the just right distance with the just right amount of oxygen. It's just perfect. Why is it like this? Well, the second reason uh, that, that uh, Paul Davies gets into here is that the laws of physics, he says on page seven, today, the laws of physics occupy the central position in science. Indeed, they have almost assumed almost a deistic status themselves, often cited as the bedrock of physical reality. So we have not only this mathematical language that it's written in, but now we have the laws of physics that really are this kind of foundational principle that guides all things. What is the explanation for this? So kind of finishing up this introduction, um, he's saying, does this kind of get rid of God? And he says that when scientific explanations conflicted with religious explanations, religion invariably lost the battle. 
Now, I don't think that this is always true. Now, there might be more instances than not where, you know, a, a religion and science came into conflict and we realized that our religious understanding was wrong. But there were times where it was the opposite. Religion has been saying for a very long time that our universe had a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it wasn't for the last hundred years or so that in the early 19, 1900s that science went, oh, hey, our universe did have a beginning, Big Bang cosmology. All right, so there are times when religion has been right and there's times when science has been right. But again, the approach that I take is both science, the study of nature, and theology, our study of scripture, are both given to us by God. Scripture and nature are both creations and given us to us by God. They're both God's word, his, his creation, general and special revelation. So our proper science and proper theology should agree. If they don't agree, we know that we're doing one wrong. And so there's times when religious people said, you know, the, the, the earth is the center of the galaxy and turned out that was wrong. And there's times when scientists said the universe was eternal. It turns out that was wrong. And so sometimes we, 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 when they're in conflict, we want to find that harmony. But it doesn't necessarily mean that religion has always lost the battle. We can't jump to it's always lost. There's times it's been right. Now, um, he then jumps on, he says, but, you know, there are these things that we don't understand yet. But even when we don't understand these, he says, quote, this doesn't mean that we need to appeal to magic or miracles to plug the gaps. What is needed are advances in scientific understanding. Here, again, I would agree that we don't just plug a gap in our knowledge with a miracle or, as he says, with magic. And we'll talk about that later at the end conclusion of today's discussion. But we need more better scientific understanding. Like, I don't think our science should stop. I think that we do need to continue progressing and thinking um, and, 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 and advancing in what we are doing to try to understand better the creation that God has given us. That's why the, the modern scientific movement was started by Christians, is realizing this has been given to us by God and ordered it in a way for us to understand and to know him more. And so we should continue to advance in our scientific understanding to better understand the ways that God has designed our universe. And so he says, you know, when it comes to metaphysical questions, though, and here's where I love what, what Davies does in this book. He says, when it comes to the metaphysical questions, the philosophical questions, like why are there laws of nature? Not just what are the laws? How are the laws ordered? Why are the laws necessary? But now he says, why are there laws at all? He says, the situation is less clear. All right. And so I love how he's humble enough to, to say, look, these are questions that we don't quite have answers to yet. Um, so <clears throat> it's going to be a little bit harder for me to get to questions because I am by myself and rather than me being able to read the questions as my guest is talking. Um, so maybe a, a few different breaks. I'll try to kind of script, uh, glance over there and look through these. Um, so he says, look, many of the big questions have remained unchanged since the birth of civilization and they still vex us today. But he, he makes, a, lastly, kind of in this introduction part, he makes a very interesting statement I want to read to you guys here. He says, many scientists who are struggling to construct a fully comprehensive theory of the physical universe openly admit that part of the motivation is to finally get rid of God, whom they view as a dangerous and infantile delusion. And not only God, but the, any vestige of God talk, such as meaning, purpose, or design in nature. Again, I love the honesty and the open, open, openness here. And, and again, this is not saying every scientist does this. But what we have to recognize is there sometimes is a, a worldview motivation behind what we're doing. 
that we, we want to have this idea that like religious people are biased and scientific people are, are unbiased. It's just based on science. And that's simply not true. There are scientists that are trying to, un, as unbiased as they can, ob observe the data objectively. And there are religious people that try to remove that bias and, and observe the data objectively. And then there are biased religious people that are not looking at things fairly and they just have their religious conclusion and there's nothing that will change their mind. As well as he says and, and admits, there are scientists who openly admit that they're doing this to get rid of God. That's the goal. And so this idea of getting rid of meaning, getting rid of purpose, getting rid of design, we need to get rid of any of this. Why? Well, because if there's a meaning put into creation, what's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? Then, well, why are we created? It's a simple explanation. If I have my, my iPhone here, you ask, well, what are you supposed to use it for? Well, what's the purpose of an iPhone? Well, to get the purpose, you have to go back to who created it. What was it made for? Right? That's with anything. Why is there this on here? Well, because it's made for coffee. Get some right now. It's made for coffee. And when it's hot, you want to be able to hold it and not burn your hand. All right? We can go back to who designed the coffee mug and we can learn what they designed it for. What's the purpose of this? And there are some objects that you look at and maybe it's not as obvious of what the purpose is. And you have to go back to who created this thing, who designed it. And that gives us the understanding. And so questions like meaning, purpose, design, that points back to a purposer, a designer, someone who put meaning into something. And so those are words that we have to get away from. And so has, that's the question, has what we're going to look at now gotten rid of God? Now, one final kind of uh, summary point or, or concluding point on this introduction that is so important because uh, so many students go off to college campuses and they hear that science has proven that God doesn't exist. Notice what Davy says here. This is on page 15. Again, the God of scholarly theology, by contrast, so he's contrasting against other gods that other people kind of create, is cast in a role of a wise cosmic architect whose existence is manifested through the rational order of the cosmos, an order that is a fact revealed by science. That sort of God is largely immune to the scientific attack. Now, some may say, think that this is like a, an escape, like, oh, you just have defined God in a way to, to remove him from any sort of scientific attack. And the answer is no, that's not what we've done. Right? We're trying to accurately represent who God is. The, the point, though, is the, the biblical view of God, who is outside of nature, who is a supernatural being, non-physical being, if science is the study of the physical world and God is a non-physical being, then science can't come to concluding factors one way or another. Right? That's why in other interviews, I've talked about this idea that you can't prove God exists with science and prove he doesn't. Right? We, we use science to provide evidence in support of premises that are in philosophical arguments that have theological conclusions. I think that was the way that William Lane Craig put it, or even Melissa Kane Travis quoting him, right? We use scientific discoveries and evidence to support premises that are in philosophical arguments that have theological conclusions, right? So you can, for example, like the, the cosmological argument that says if, uh, if um, everything that begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. 
And so we can look at scientific evidence to show that our universe began to exist. And we can look at Big Bang cosmology and expansion of the universe and, and um, the second law of thermodynamics. And we can look at scientific evidence to support the fact that our universe had a beginning. And then we fit that into a philosophical conclusion that therefore our universe began to exist. And now if all of our universe, space and time began to exist at the Big Bang, now that has a theological you know, implication or conclusion of some being outside of our universe must have created, right? And that's kind of the way the argument works. And so what's just important and I want to point out here is, is don't let someone tell you that somehow science has proven that God does not exist. If we have, as he calls here, a scholarly theology, a proper scholarly view of God as a being outside of nature that has created nature, but designed it in a way that as we study it, we learn things about his nature. He says this sort of God is largely immune to scientific uh, attack. And so it's an important point to, to look at there. So uh, two quick questions here uh, from kind of the introduction before we get into the design that he mentions and then the uh, the explanations that he goes over. Uh, does Davies really think we discover mathematics or that things are so non-chaotic that we are able to describe and understand our universe? Um, it seems to be, and I could be wrong again, um, it seems to me that he has this idea that mathematics is kind of discovered, that there is this, as he has quoted, um, that nature just has this mathematical subtext. That, it, that it's inside of nature uh, in the first place that, that we are seeing as we observe nature. And so that's what it seems to be that he's suggesting here. Now, again, I, I maybe should have put this qualifier at the very beginning. Um, this is simply based on this book, uh, the, the, the conclusions that he has is explaining here and, and what I'm kind of uh, drawing from that. Uh, he may have other published work in other places that, that emphasize other points that might be slightly different. And so this is not an evaluation of all that Paul Davies has written. Uh, this is looking here at, um, at what he's written here in the Goldilocks Enigma. Um, Inference to the best explanation. We, we are going to get to this idea of the inference to the best explanation. Um, I am actually, Patty, thanks for commenting that question as well. Um, I am a school teacher. I'm not a science teacher. I love science. It was always my favorite topic in school, but I actually teach uh, theology and apologetics. So I teach a philosophy of ethics course to my seniors. I teach a comparative religions and worldviews, and I teach a historical Christian doctrine and apologetics. And so my, my bachelor's is in religion and theological studies with an emphasis in youth leadership, and my master's is in Christian apologetics. And so that's what I teach. But I have my certificate in science apologetics from the Reasons Institute, which is where I took the astronomy course that made me read this book. And so I do have a love for science. I think it's one of the most fascinating ways that we can understand, uh, or just an interesting way that we can understand God. And the reason I also love science is because I think it's the main way that students get challenged and attacked. And one of my first speaking events was because a student went off to college, I uh, was in science courses, and, um, and left the faith. And, and, and then came back and told all the kids at youth group, you can't be a Christian and a scientist, so I'm choosing to be a scientist. And in fact, just a few weeks ago, I was speaking at a church, and a, and a father said his son had walked away from Christianity. And I said, why? And he goes, well, he took a class on evolution. And so I love science because I think it's not only interesting and fascinating to me and what it tells us about God, but also because I find it to be one of the main reasons students walk away from the faith. 
And so to help them have a proper view of science, seeing how science fits in with a Christian worldview to me is, is fun and necessary and needed. And so that's why I love taking the time. So uh, thank you for that comment. All right, so let's jump in quickly. I'm, I'm already talking way longer than I thought I would. Again, I got to learn how to do these book reviews a little bit better, but hey. Um, all right, what about the design aspect? Well, we'll go over this somewhat quickly. So he, he, he runs through quite a few of the kind of common aspects of how our universe is designed, right? Why it's just right for life, the Goldilocks zone. Uh, talking about expansion, right? If we expand too fast, uh, we don't exist. Uh, because uh, you have to expand at the right speed for the right elements to form and planets and galaxies to form. So if you expand too fast, it doesn't give the time for the galaxies to form. If you expand too slow, gravity actually pulls back and then you collapse back in on itself. Um, we can understand, you know, how the universe uh, began. And he has this whole chapter on the universe beginning. He says on page 55, how has the universe contrived its explosive genesis with such exactitude that there has been no distinguishable difference across the sky, even between regions that have been in that haven't been in casual contact. It is this. I love this example. It, it is. It's as if a troop of blind and deaf ballerinas were to perform a perfectly choreographed dance. <laughs> so here's here's what he's looking at is just the the initial conditions of our universe and the expansion and how perfect expansion and gravity had to be. It's as if blind and deaf ballerinas performed a perfectly choreographed dance um, and just kind of the the unreasonableness of that, the unlikeliness of that. Now, um, you know, what happened well before the Big Bang, right? You have this idea of, you know, creation from nothing. And he talks about in the book how some people want to define nothing as empty space. That would be Lawrence Krauss's idea, right? Nothing is, is the absence of something as uh, Lawrence Krauss talks about. But that's kind of like looking in your refrigerator as a child and, and opening it up and it's full of food. And you say, Mom, Dad, there's nothing to eat. No, there's a lot to eat. There's just nothing you want to eat. So the question here is if we're going to define this, there was nothing before the Big Bang as empty space. Well, empty space is actually something. It's empty space. So a better explanation here is that nothing actually means no thing, neither space nor matter. It actually means nothing. Now, here's a very interesting, and here's where we can use scientific data to, to pull out theological conclusions. Davies writes on page 59, 69, he says, you can't have time without space or space without time. So if space cannot be continued back through the Big Bang singularity, then neither can time. This conclusion carries a momentous implication to repeat Time itself began with the Big Bang. Now, what he gets into is this idea of the Big Bang and the singularity where, where all of our universe comes back for all of eternity into this infinitely dense point to where there's literally nothing. And that's the beginning. And he's saying that, that space and matter do not go through that singularity, that before the Big Bang, that there's no space. And if you have no space, you have no time. So that time itself began at the Big Bang. Stephen Hawking said it something like this, where he says, uh, virtually everyone now agrees that, that both time and matter came into existence at the Big Bang. Now, here's why this is a momentous implication, according to Davies. He follows up on page 69 and says, If there was no time or place before the Big Bang for a causative agent, agency to exist, then we can attribute no physical cause to the Big Bang. 
here's what's it here i mean this creates the problem for a materialist right if if there's no physical space where a physical thing can exist in order to cause the big bang to happen then you can't have a physical cause to the big bang so a, a non-physical god would work you can't have anything else physical there but then also because there's no space at the big bang because space cannot go through that singularity as davies is talking about here then there's also no time. And so not only do you have no physical cause of our universe, but you have no cause inside of time for our universe. And so this is where we can draw that theological implication that we have a spaceless, timeless cause of our universe. And we're starting to get some of those details of who, of who God is here. Now, some people will try to argue that, uh, that there's a quantum origin. At the quantum level, there's particles coming in and out of existence um, out of nothing. And, and one of the more popular mo models that he talks about in his book is, is the Hartle-Hawking model, where Stephen Hawking created this model um, of, of how this works. Um, and he mentions this here on page 78. Uh, where some of you maybe have seen this, where it's it's a it's more like a cone. So there's not a point in which we came into existence. I don't know if you can hear me if I'm blocking my voice, but a cone where there's no actual end point. And he says here on this page, describing the Hartle-Hawking model, he says, um, in this highly schematic picture, based on the proposal by Hartle and Hawking, the universe is bounced, oh, sorry, bounded in the past, but there's no singular origin at which it suddenly switches on. Rather, time becomes continuously space-like near the beginning as a result of the quantum mechanical effect. Now, Paul Davies' um, view of this, he says, how seriously can we take the Hartle-Hawking account of the cosmic origin? Not very seriously, in my opinion. So here's again, the agnostic scientist saying, look, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. This idea of this quantum uh, beginning that is this continuous space-like time frame because there's no point, uh, it's not, should not be taken very seriously. And so um, that's kind of one of the explanations that people give for this beginning-like state to get away from the implications of a spaceless, timeless creator. Um. Now, again, he, he, he goes into looking at evolution. He goes into looking at how this would work. And he gives this explanation. He says, you know, not only would the beginning have to be this way, but, but we are here to observe it. And so he says on page 136, he says, now imagine your pre-human ancestors stretching back hundreds of millions of years. A long time ago, your ancestors were fish. So the question came in, does, uh, does Davies believe in evolution? And, and it sure seems from this book like he does. Um, he says, uh, again, there, he says, think uh, how fish spawn countless eggs and imagine the tiny, tiny fraction that survive, that survive and mature. Nevertheless, not one of your ancestors, not a single one was a failed fish. What are the odds against the sequence of lucky accidents, is what he calls them, lucky accidents, extending unbroken over billions of years, generation after generation? He says, no human lottery would dare to offer such adverse odds, right? The odds against this is insurmountable. But people say, but hey, guess what? You're lucky, right? We're here, right? This idea of the observer effect, like, hey, yeah, it's very unlikely you won, but guess what? You did win. And I think there's a great illustration that maybe shows the problem of the observer effect that like, well, but you're here and you observe it, so it must have happened. Um, Put it this way, and, and I love this illustration. Maybe you've heard it. If if you're like in, you know, let's say 
uh, you go back to World War II or some, you know, your Nazi Germany and, and you've done something uh, inappropriate and you are, are, have been sentenced to death by firing squad. And so they line you up and there's 10 people with guns and, and you're lined up with a few other people that are also getting the death penalty by firing squad. And so you, you, uh, you hear and they go fire and the guns go off and the person next to you drops. And then they reload and then fire and the guns go off and the person next to you drops. Fire and the guns go off and the person next to you drops. And then it gets to you and you close your eyes and you hear fire, pop, 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 pop. And then you open your eyes and you're still there and they all missed. Now you go, well, of course they all missed. You're still observing it. You got lucky. Or is the better explanation, there's a reason they all missed. There's, there's intention behind their missing. And I think that that's a lot more, uh, a better explanation that the that tra 10 trained marksmen don't just miss. Well, but you got really lucky. And if you wouldn't have gotten lucky, you would have been dead. But the fact that you are not dead, you got lucky. And hey, how about that? No, the better explanation is there's a reason they missed you. They missed you on purpose. So just because we are here does not get around this. Well, how lucky you're here, you observe. It still is like, but I'm here. There's got to be a reason behind this. Now, um, lastly, to kind of go over the, the, the explanations here, and hopefully I'm not boring you guys with all of this scientific data that he's laid out. Some of it was over my head, uh, but it was very interesting. He talks about the weak force. Um, and he talks about this cosmic designer machine, which again, I think is a great illustration for a God explanation where he has what looks like, and it's probably going to be a little bit blurry, uh, but what looks like a God type character, what people would draw the big, long white beard. And, and he's changing all these little dials and, and he, and he explains kind of this idea of there's all these fine tuned dials that have to be just right for us to exist. And he quotes on page one, I quote from page 145, he says, if gravity were a bit stronger, all the stars would be uh, radiative and planets might not form. If gravity were somewhat weaker, all the stars would be convective and supernovas would never happen. And if we don't have supernovas, then we don't have material getting spread out through our universe and we don't exist. He says, either way, the prospects of life would be diminished. Uh, he talks about the size of neutrons on page 145, that this neutron has to be exactly the size it is. If it was bigger or smaller, we don't exist. And then he says, the collection of felicitous coincidences in physics and cos cosmology implies that the great designer had better set the knobs carefully or the universe would be a very inhospitable place. How many knobs are there? The standard model, model of particle physics has about 20 undetermined parameters, while cosmology has about 10. All told, there are over 30 knobs. What are the chances, as he talks about in his book, of getting 30 perfectly set knobs, right? It's like, you know, you're taking the shower and I got one dial and sometimes it's hard to get the right heat. Or you have, you know, the faucet has two dials, hot and cold. And sometimes it's, oh, too hot, nope, too cold. And it keeps changing. It's hard to get the right heat. And my bicycle has 22 gears, but sometimes there's just not the right gear, right? And it's difficult, right? If you've ever ran sound at a concert and you have this soundboard and there's all the knobs, right? If, if one is too loud or too quiet, like to get the perfect sounding band, all the knobs have to be set at the perfect place. And then you still get feedback and you still have issues. And so here he talks about 30 different knobs 20 within physics, 10 within cosmology that have to be exactly the way that they are. And his estimation for the likelihood of this is getting heads 40, 400 times in a row. So flipping a coin and getting heads 400 times in a row. Now, 
He then gets into the explanations and he says, there is indeed a way to explain it, but it represents a huge departure from the way we normally do science. And many scientists are aghast at it. But as we shall see in the next chapter, it may be the only answer. And to that would be a multiverse. Now, quickly before we jump in here to the explanations, I want to just say, um, as uh, from my perspective, and I've learned from Reasons to Believe and Hugh Ross, and he's been on my show quite a few times, is, and all of his scholars have been on the show, and, and we hopefully are planning something in the future on evolution. Um, but they don't take the approach of arguing for God from design based on probability, this idea of how unlikely it is to flip a coin 400 times in a row and, and, and get it. So therefore it must have happened because you can always come back with like the famous dumb and dumber line. Like, you know, what are the chances of a girl like me and a guy like you getting together? And she's like one in a million. So you're telling me there's a chance, right? No matter how unlikely someone go, well, we can get really lucky. And so anytime we're kind of based on probability, that can be a response of, well, we can get really lucky. And maybe. Now, sometimes it's luck is too crazy. It's not happening. But that can always be a response. For that reason, reasons to believe, and I, and I like this approach, they talk about this idea of not arguing from probability, but arguing from similarity, right? Of this idea that, that we, we, we look at a book and we know, based on the information, it has to have an author. It's not like, how unlikely would it be that this to come about without it? It's like, no, we, we know what design things are. Here is a design thing. Therefore, it has to have a designer, right? That type of approach of you looking at like the, 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 the rotary engine-like structure of the bacterial flagellum and matching it with another rotary engine and not just saying, how unlikely would it be? Or what are the chances of getting a rotary engine by chance, it's not necessarily that. The, the, the secondary approach is, is we know that engines need designers. And so if this other structure resembles that, it would also need a designer. Um, and so that would be the approach. Now, uh, the question came in, Slam, thank you for that question. Uh, Davies is not a proponent of the multiverse, is he? And the answer is no, he's not. But what's interesting is even on the back page, he says the multiverse theory sounds like it came straight out of scientific fiction, a science fiction plot. Here, he talks about the multiverse as being, um, it may be, as he says, it may be the only answer. Now, so he goes into a little bit of the multiverse. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the multiverse because I want to get into his explanation of designer. Uh, but he says, look, uh, a couple of things with the multiverse. One, it's inferred by a theory. There's not direct evidence. There might be some indirect evidence, but because... What it would be is a either near infinite or infinite number, excuse me, a near infinite or infinite number of other universes outside of ours that we can't see. There's no way we can observe them, right? And, and he talks about this idea in the book of, of this horizon, what's, what astronomers and call the horizon, which is really as far as we can see. And we, we know that there's other stuff past what we can see, but we literally just can't see that far. And so these multiverses would be outside of it. And so he says, you know, one issue is that it's inferred by theory, uh, maybe some indirect evidence, but there's no direct evidence. Another issue that he, he brings up with a multiverse is that the laws of physics, we understand the laws of physics could vary. Um, and that you would have to have, as he describes, the key features of the universe that make it just right for life. These key features would somehow have to be frozen out of the hot big bang in the first split second. Of, of, of the beginning. 
that, that you have these random laws of physics, but somehow within a second of the Big Bang, these laws of physics, the expansion, the gravity, all of these fundamental ideas, they have to be frozen and unchanged from that point on and kind of the unlikeliness of that as well. And so there's other reasons why he, he, he's not convinced of this multiverse idea, at least in this book, is not necessarily um, a great alternative, but as he says here, maybe the only answer. And then that gets us to now his, his kind of ideas of the Christian idea. And this is the chapter titled Intelligent or Not So Intelligently Designed. So, what does he think about this idea of an intelligent designer? Now, I thought I, I thought he would be a lot more open or a lot more um, accepting of the intelligent designer approach, considering he had used like the 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 example. Let me get the wording right again here. The example of oh, that was page seventy eight. The great designer he talked about uh, with on the on the board changing the knobs. Here it is. The cosmic designer. Um, he talks about another part about the grand designer. Um, and so I thought he'd be a lot more open to it. Uh, he wasn't, though. But his explanations, I thought, were very interesting. And he, and he really brings up here, I guess, I, I kind of categorized it into three main arguments against the intelligent design um, idea. And the first one that he covers is God of the Gaps. All right, God of the gaps. And we talked about that a little bit at the beginning, uh, but here he he brings it up here. And so he talks about, you know, first, yeah, can the multiverse solve the Goldilocks enigma and really um, not super well. Uh, the next one, though, is the God of the gaps or the, the intelligently designed aspect. And he says here, he says, many gaps have indeed been plugged. One of these, in fact, is the eye, the favorite example of irreducible complexity of the 19th century. And so, you know, there's, there's ways in which, uh, you know, the God of the gaps idea is this understanding of, you know, we, we, we don't know something. And so we insert God into that gap in our knowledge and say, OK, God did it. And so we don't understand how the eye became the way it is. And therefore, uh, we say, well, God must have created it. It's too irreducibly complex. And he says, well, that's been solved. And so the, these gaps that we used to claim were God. Now you could go further back and say, you know, people didn't know how the rain happened. And so, okay, the gods must be crying. And then we learn about water cycles. And then there's the thunder and lightning. And we're like, ah, you know, Zeus is mad throwing down lightning bolts. And, and then we understand how lightning actually works and thunder. And then the seas are going crazy. And, um, and it's like, okay, well, Poseidon is upset. And then we learn what causes, you know, waves in the ocean and that sort of thing. And so these are often presented as, as, as examples of ways in which religious kind of God thinking people would, would not know how something in our universe worked and then plug that gap in their knowledge with, well, God is doing it or the gods are doing it. And over time, we have been filling in some of these gaps. And... Um, he says that this is going to keep going. And so the question is, well, is it this way? And yeah, these kind of are three reasons on why to not believe in, in the God theory. And so the first one is God of the gaps, that many gaps have been plugged. And that could be true. Many of the gaps has been plugged. The, the issue here, though, is if there's a gap in our knowledge that we don't know what it is, and we say, well, science will find an answer, as mentioned, you kind of have science of the gaps, or you have naturalism of the gaps. All right, this was, you know, in a conversation I had with, with uh, naturalist atheist Tom Jump, uh, and then I kind of accused him of doing, where he would say, you know, well, maybe there's a natural explanation out there that, that explains it. I'm like, that's naturalism of the gaps. You don't know. And so you're just assuming a natural explanation. 
Why do you get it that you can't do that? The question is, if we don't know, the answer should be, we don't know. But I also don't think, as all the times where we're accused of making God of the gaps arguments, I don't think we're actually just plugging God into a gap in our knowledge. Now, he then goes on to say, um, if there is a designer, this is this being is clearly not micromanaging the process really well. And he kind of goes in this bad design aspect. Well, what about the, the problems? And I think, again, like the, the bad design argument assumes that there's a right design, right? Like you can only argue that this coffee mug has been poorly designed if you know what, what a better use or the purpose of the coffee mug is. Like, and again, he, he argues at the beginning that, that people want, scientists want to get rid of purpose, design aspect. And so to say that the, this has been poorly designed is you're saying that there's a purpose for which this could work better, right? So is the phone poorly designed? Well, in some ways it is. Like my phone can't, you know, run Google, right? My, one of my best friends worked at Amazon and one of the computing just complexes where these buildings are just full of computers. My phone cannot do that. It's, it's not designed for that. Well, does that mean my phone has been poorly designed? No, of course not. Because if I had something so powerful that I could run all of Amazon, then it, it has to fit in buildings. I can't put it in my pocket and carry it around and hold it to my face as I talk. And so you have to look at what is the purpose of this to know if the design is bad or not. Now, secondly, with that, even if something is poorly designed, it doesn't mean that there's not design, right? So you could, you could look at some 10-year-old's um, uh, 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 treehouse, and you could look at how it's badly designed and, and the, the pieces of wood are not connected and the nails are sticking out and the roof leaks. But even if that's the case, it doesn't then mean there's no design, right? And so when we try to use this argument like there's poor design, therefore there's no God, that is a jump that the evidence doesn't actually give you. Now, at the same time, this again is a naturalism of the gaps in my book, because there's a lot of times where we look at something and we go, doesn't look designed, or it looks like bad design. They throw God out and say, therefore evolution or therefore naturalism. And we later find out there is design, right? Like the appendix is one of these where it's like, well, what's the purpose of the appendix? We don't see that it has any purpose. Junk DNA was another example. Look at all this junk DNA. There's no purpose, bad design. Why would God make it that way? And then we start to learn that these things actually do serve a function, do have a purpose. And so in the same way that he's accusing Christians of just filling the gap with God, and rather we need better scientific advancement and scientific knowledge, I think naturalists often do the same thing, where they say, this looks poorly designed, therefore no God. Naturalism is true. Rather than saying, no, let's get better scientific knowledge and let's see what the purpose of this thing is. And he ends with this section is saying, but that is no, even though there are these, these gaps in science, that's no excuse to invoke magic to fill the gaps. And again, like, I don't know Davies and I could be off on this, but again, like that type of language makes me assume like, really invoke magic to fill the gaps? Is that what you think the Christians are doing? Is that what you think intelligent theists are doing is just simply invoking magic? No, the idea of a designer designing something is not magic. And so it seems to not take the, the and my, my ultimate critique for my paper in this is I, I think it doesn't seem to take the scholarship of Christian theologians and Christian scientists seriously. And so that's kind of the first one is this God of the gaps, this bad design, uh, God should have made it better. Uh, and and, and, and that, that it suggests that there's a way that it should have been done. Second reason, uh, that he mentions here of kind of why the God 
intelligent design explanation does not make sense is um, he calls it a, a violation of the laws of nature is, is a miracle. He says, um, there is no doubt that even in this crude form, the hypothesis of an intelligent designer applied to the law of nature is far superior than any designer considered in the previous section who violates the laws of nature from time to time by working miracles in evolutionary history. So his argument here is if there is a designer that designed the laws of nature to then have creative abilities, that would be better than having a God that designed things, but then also still has to do miracles. That's not as good enough. That's not better design. Right. And so his argument again here is he kind of throws out the God explanation because he says a, it's better to not need miracles. In fact, that's not very intelligent at all. And so if you're going to claim that there's an intelligent designer, but he designed something in a way that he needs to do a miracle, then it's not very intelligently designed. He says, if I were God, how I would have done it is by creating natural laws that have creative abilities where then they do everything. And I find that very interesting. Um, and, and there's some way in which I agree with that's how God did it. Like, if you watch my channel enough, you know that I'm a progressive creationist. I hold to old earth creationism where I think that God was able to create aspects of our universe through using a natural process. And I don't think that that takes away from creation at all, right? I use the examples of Jesus and his miracles to defend this idea where Jesus could have at times just spoken wine into existence. He said, he could have said that there'd be wine and wine could have appeared right before him, but instead he turned water into wine. Did he need the water? No, but he did it that way. I don't know why he did. Jesus at times said to people, open your eyes, see, stand up and walk. And they did. Other times he spits in the ground and makes mud and rubs it on their eyes so that they can see. Well, did he have to have the mud? No. Why would he use the mud, a natural thing in order to do a miracle? I don't know, but he did. And so, um, man, when I'm talking the whole time, I get thirsty. And so this idea that, um, he, 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 God could have designed the natural order in a way to, to have some sort of creative abilities. I think, I think it's true in the same way that we design machines to then create products, right? You know, the, 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 the assembly line, but we would never say that just because this machine now is creating this product, that there's obviously no intelligence behind it, right? You still need that intelligence and it is beautiful. But at the same time, I think this also takes away from miracles. Miracles are not a violation of the laws of nature. Uh, God is coming in and working in an incredible way, again, to show that he's present, to show that he's there. Uh, he could have set up the system in a way that he he did it Davy's way, where he sets up the whole system the whole way and stands back like a deistic God and is not involved. But God doesn't want to be like that. God wants to be involved in our lives. He wants to act and move in our lives. He doesn't want to be a, par a parent that just gives you the way to succeed and then stands back and does nothing. It's here's the way to succeed and I'm going to be with you in it, right? We serve a relational God that wants to do miracles to show himself present in our life, not to stand back in a deistic way and just give us this process because he wants to show how amazing he is. He wants to be present, right? And again, this ignores the purpose of Christianity and God creating us to be in relationship with us, not simply just to show us his power. It seems like Davies objection here to intelligence is saying, well, a more intelligent God would have just showed, displayed his power in creating natural laws that create everything. Maybe that would have shown more power, but it takes away from his relational aspect. Now, if you're shocked by this, 
by him falling back on these old retired objections and arguments, I think you'll be even more shocked by argument number three. And if I gave you time to guess, you could probably guess it. But here's his third reason why the intelligent designer is actually not so intelligently designed. And what is it? Who designed the designer? Now, he has a very interesting explanation of where he goes with this. Uh, now, he, but here's what's funny about this. He says, well, who designed the designer? He says, this is a variant of the old who made God conundrum. He says, if the decision to make the universe was a profound, was a profound and considered one that proceeded from God's nature, then one is to, prompted to ask about the source of that nature. Sure. What is the source of that nature? And so he says, so we have this problem. Who designed the designer? Now, what's crazy is he presents this objection. Who designed the designer? This is the old variant of the who made God conundrum. And he stops. That's the end of the section. It ends there. Two pages later, he kind of gets back into it and he says this. Theologians have confronted the who made God argument for centuries and have had plenty of time to come up with the interesting answers. And then goes into the theological explanation of God as a necessary being. And as a necessary being, he has to exist because he does not rely on anyone else for his existence. And I'll have to put up another short video uh, responding to this if you're curious on how to respond to the who designed the designer who made God argument, because uh, I haven't answered other places and I don't have the time to get into it here. But it's been answered forever. And, and so he uses this argument to show, well, if God created, then who made God? But then two pages later say it's been answered. Now, here's how he responds, though. And I thought this was interesting. He goes into the Christian explanation. And he says, but God, and here's his, here's his I guess, his, his objection or his refutation to the Christian explanation of God as a necessary being. He says, God did not necessarily create the universe as it is but instead chose to do so, right? So God didn't have to create the universe. God chose to create, true. So, but now the alarm bells ring. Can a necessary being act in a manner that is not necessary? Does that make sense? On the face of it, it doesn't. So here's his conclusion is, is that a necessary being would have to act in necessary ways. And the fact that God chose to create rather than needing to create, or it's necessary that he creates, can it, can a being do that? And to me, this is, this, to me, this is kind of like a, a, um, uh, um, I just completely blanked on the term. To me, this is a lot the logical fallacy of, uh, um, and, oh my goodness. Anyways, where, where you switch the definition of a word, um, halfway through, I just taught logic like two weeks ago to my students and I'm blanking equivocation. There we go. The fallacy of equivocation where being a necessary being means that he just doesn't rely on anyone else for his existence. God exists necessarily. He can't not exist. That doesn't mean that the things that he does also have to be necessary, right? And so you're, you're taking a necessary being in response to his existence and applying that necessary to also God's actions, but that but a necessary action is different than necessary existence, if that makes sense. So you're you're changing how we use necessary here to make this distinction and to make it seem like a problem when it's not. God as a necessary being simply talks about he doesn't need anything else to exist. He can't not exist. That doesn't then talk about that his decisions have to also be a certain way. God has free will and God can choose to do some things and not others. Now here's the worst part. After this explanation of God is a necessary being, who designed the designer, 
that uh, miracles are a violation of the laws of nature. God of the gaps. I kid you not. Here's what it says. He says, confused. Or maybe you're confused. Maybe you're having a hard time tracking with me. Hopefully you're not. He says, confused. I certainly am. I am not an accomplished enough philosopher to evaluate these explanations, which have become very technical. And to me, I went, ah, oh, man. Like, you, you wrote a book giving the philosophical answers to the question, why is the universe just right for life? He's the director of Beyond, which is confronting the reality of big questions of science and philosophy, and then goes into some very bad arguments against God, even though he spent this entire book talking about the design and, and the order and, and we should not have the ability to understand this and we shouldn't be able to see this and how crazy is this? It is so unlikely that we, there has to be an explanation. He even uses the illustration of a great designer and the cosmic designer adjusting all these knobs and then rejects the actual intelligent design argument for God of the gaps, miracles are violation of the laws of nature, and who designed the designer, but then ends by saying, but I'm not an accomplished enough philosopher to evaluate these explanations. And look, I'm, I'm not a PhD philosopher, but I don't think you have to be to understand that some of these arguments are just not good. They've been answered. This is equivocation. This is, this is jumping to conclusions that don't follow logically. Like this shouldn't take an advanced degree in philosophy in order to be able to recognize that this simply doesn't make sense. Like we should be able to look at the arguments that he has presented. We should be able to look at the insane scientific precision that he talks about in the whole book about how our universe is just right for life and say, there has to be an orderer. Right? That's the Goldilocks enigma. That's the problem. Like That's what Goldilocks, if you have a bowl of soup, that's the just right temperature. And not only is it the right temperature, but it's the right amount of soup. And not only is it the right amount of soup, but it's also the right flavor. It's not too salty, not, not, you know, not salty enough. It's not too much meat. It's not too little meat. It's not too much water. It's not too little water. It's not too much pepper, or too less pepper. It's not too hot or too cold. It's just perfect. You know that there is a cook that made and heated up and left out that soup. And if it had been sitting there forever, it would be cold. And if it just came out, it's too hot. There's intention behind it that comes from intelligence. So to end then by saying, I'm not an accomplished philosopher to evaluate this. Well, in some sense, yeah, that, that's a poor evaluation of some philosophical ideas. I really wish in this book, he would have taken the technical, like the, the, the scholarship in theology and science from Christians seriously. Uh, but it didn't seem to be that way. Now, in conclusion, what I thought was interesting, and then I'll get to, if there's the final questions, I'll get kind of get to your questions in the last minute or so, is um, he then kind of gets back to the multiverse idea, right? As he says, okay, this is not an option. Maybe the multiverse is all that it is. But then he says, but even with a multiverse, the question comes up is who designed the multiverse? Because the multiverse is not necessary. It would be contingent. And therefore he says there has to be a universe generating mechanism such as eternal inflation or something else. And so 
what is this mechanism? And now who designed the mechanism that is producing this multiverse? So you don't get away. And what he's recognizing is you don't get away from the problem of design. You can't just eliminate design and say, nope, it's not designed, no problem. You have to face the problem of design. And that calls out for an explanation. Why is it this way? Now, he doesn't make a final conclusion, at least what I noticed, maybe I missed it. He doesn't make a final conclusion in this book, but I think that we can draw that conclusion. Now, lastly, what he said I thought was fascinating is this. He says, he says why do stars, planets, atoms, living organisms exist rather than other things? The possibilities of what could exist is only limited by our imagination. And he says, unless everything that can exist does, something still unexplained must separate what exists from what doesn't. So a unicorn could is logically possible. A unicorn could exist, but doesn't. Well, why not? Why do we have horses, but not unicorns? Why do we breathe oxygen, not nitrogen? Why do we have plants, not goo? Why do we have fish, not whatever? Why do fish have fins, not wings? This calls out, as he brings up here, this calls out for an explanation that separates what exists from what doesn't. Why does something exist rather than nothing? The theistic explanation addresses this so well of a God who designed and created it for, for the purposes in which he did, that all things have been created in order to bring people into knowledge and relationship with him, right? Psalm 14, when the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims the work, uh, his handiwork. Romans chapter one talks about the, the, we can see the invisible attributes, the divine characters and qualities and power of God in the things that he has made. We can look at what exists versus what doesn't, and we can draw conclusions of who our creator is. So um, there's my first book review. If you stayed with me all the way to the end, thank you. It means I didn't lose you by dragging on, but I would love your feedback. I would love your thoughts on how to make this better because I have other books coming up. I have Christian theological books I want to go over. I have some atheist books that I would like to discuss. And so they're all different topics. And so I have interviews with authors, but then also the ones that I'm reading for free. And so if you can comment below and share what you uh, want to hear there. Also, again, I'll throw it out and then I'll get to your questions is um, next week. Islam, understanding Islam, how to talk with Muslims. Uh, the week, I think it's the following week, but the week before Thanksgiving is going to be on the biblical view of immigration. And then coming up, I have an interview on the Trinity. So should be some fun stuff. If you want to continue to learn and understand, defend, and faithfully live out the Christian worldview, this is the channel you can subscribe and follow. And I'd love to help you in that journey. So let me jump back and see what kind of questions there are. Um, and then we will finish up our time. So you can post those if you want as I read through these. Um, Douglas Axe on his discussion, the design intuition explanation. Davies uh, could learn something from Axe. I do have Axe's book. Right there. Undeniable. This has been a person that I've been wanting to get on the show for quite some time. I have not reached out to him yet, though. I don't know why. Um, but... That gives me an idea. I should leave this book out and contact Doug Axe. So thank you so much uh, for that. The design intuition, I think, is a, is a really cool uh, explanation that he has there. Um, so, yeah, you don't see uh, Axe getting out there much. Maybe, who knows? Maybe I'll get lucky. I'll let you guys know. Um, yeah, why do we have life? Why is there anything at all? I think this is a difficult question to answer from a secular perspective. Why is there something rather than nothing? Either nothing created everything out of nothing or someone, right? And we can look at the way that creation reflects God. And even as Davies talked about at the beginning, that a, the, the theologically informed picture of God 
has a God who is created in a way that we can use science to understand and see, excuse me, man, to see his creative powers and abilities. I think that's a very beautiful thing um, of our relational ability. This, and also these desires, right? Kind of a C.S. Lewis explanation too, where you have the, these deep desires and these longings that we have for justice and peace and, and love and relationship and these ways in which these things point to a God who is loving and created us in these ways. I think there's so much, and there's so many cool things that we can look at to see the beauty of who God is and how he has created the world to be. So, um, Thank you for being here. Thank you for watching. If you've enjoyed this, share it. Let me know how I can improve. I keep looking up how to do book reviews, but they're all like written book reviews on like literature books. So I'm not quite sure how to do these, but I love to improve. Keep doing these. Uh, thank you for watching. Thank you. I didn't hopefully lose you if you're here at the end. And um, with that, I'm going to sign off. I'll see you on Tuesday. That's the Islam interview. Is it Tuesday, 2.30 p.m. Pacific time? See you guys then. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Won't hesitate to follow your love.